Welcome in to the Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Got the privilege to read a truly fascinating book over the weekend, folks. You know, the con game is an interesting game at that. And it's a game that gets played on very many and very different levels. Your con game could happen at work. It could be the person sitting in front of you who could tell you, you know what? I had an interesting weekend and they could lie their butts off about what they did this weekend and you could buy it, hook, line, and sinker. It could be the person you run into on the street who could tell you they're a millionaire and that they've had the most interesting life and you could buy it, hook, line, and sinker. It could be somebody on the phone who takes you for all your money and takes you for what you have in your bank account. Or it could be a certain someone in society who commits a murder right under your nose and you don't know it, who poses as a socialite and tells you that they're part of a prestigious family and someone who gets into the news for no reason whatsoever. They're a clout stealer. They're someone who banks on somebody else's name and takes us all for a ride over nothing at all. I shouldn't say nothing at all. They took a life. They took money. They took everybody for a ride. That's our subject today. Becoming Clark Rockefeller, Murder, Love, Deception, and the Con Man Behind It All is the book that we're talking about today. Our guest is Frank Gerardo Jr. And boy, has he written a book here that is absolutely astounding and, and will absolutely just make you think about who it is that you're talking to when you're talking to him. Let me tell you a little bit about Frank. He's an American author, journalist, victim advocate, and radio host. He's best known for the book we're talking about today, which is being reissued by Wild Blue Press under the title Becoming Clark Rockefeller. The serial imposter we're talking about isn't Clark Rockefeller, and he isn't a Rockefeller. We'll, we'll talk about that. His real name is Christian Gerhardt's writer. And we'll, we'll find out how he went from Christian to Clark in this interview. Uh, Frank got his start in journalism as a copy boy at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Subsequent to the newspaper's closing, he worked for the Ontario Daily Report, the San Gabriel Valley Tribune, and the Pasadena Star News. His 1994 story on the unsolved murder of Geneva, Geneva Hilliker Elroy, the mother of novelist James Elroy, resulted in Elroy's book, My Dark Places. Now, Frank Gerardo, our guest today, has won several writing awards, including the Southern California Press Association's Award for Investigative Journalism in 1995, the Los Angeles Press Club's First Place Award for Sports Writing in 1998, and he was a finalist for the 2015 University of Florida Award for Investigative Data Journalism in 2015. Frank also also headed a project for the Los Angeles newspaper group titled Getting Away with Murder. Not only is Frank an author of true crime nonfiction books, he's also the co-author with Burl Bearer, who's been on this show a few times, of A Taste for Murder, Betrayal in Blue with Burl and Ken Ural. And Burned, which is the biography of serial arsonist John Orr, I'm going to ask Frank at the end of this program if he'll come back and we can talk about those books as well. Now, Frank has appeared on several true crime shows on various cable networks, including Investigation Discovery. He's also been a frequent guest on uh, Crime Time with Allison Hope Wiener on Lip TV. He's also appeared on Fox News and Dateline NBC. And he's also, his expertise 
goes all over murder investigation, serial arson, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, Richard Ramirez, Clark Rockefeller, the one we're talking about today, John Leonard Orr, and 20th Century Los Angeles Area True Crime. Let's welcome him in to True Crime Tuesday. Frank Gerardo Jr. Hey, Frank, how are you? Hey, great. That was a wonderful introduction. Thanks. I Sometimes I don't even recognize myself on the internet. <laughs> well, I, and I would love to come back on the show. Uh, Burl and I have written some fun books. And uh, and you mentioned The Burned, which is a serial arsonist. It's a great, that's a wild story. Um, none of them are quite as wild as this one, but they right. all have their little twists and turns. So yeah, I, love I, to do it. I would love to have you and Burl back to talk about burn because that story in itself, that is an amazing story as well. And and I'd love to get into that with you. And we've had Burl on a few times and, and Burl is a very interesting guest. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So I think the two of you together would be uh, something special here on the show. So I would love to have both of you back on on a future date. Cool. Frank, love it. this book, man, I got to tell you, this book is just, you know, you got to you got to sit yourself down. You got to strap yourself in and be ready for a ride with this book, because, man, if you're not paying attention, you can get lost. I really that's the thing, right? There's so much there's so much going on. And, um, you know, I did write it once before I did a version of it um, almost 10 years ago and it it went out of print uh, before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was, li- it's the weirdest thing. I was listening to the radio and they were, they were interviewing Taylor Swift and she said how she was explaining how she had bought back all her music and reissued it and redone some of it. And I thought, man, I want to be like Taylor Swift. I'm going to, I, so I bought the rights back to the book. I, um, I tore it apart and, and re-edited and rewrote and re-reported some parts of it. And then, you know, feel like I got more of, the idea of telling the story like in a linear narrative instead of this, you know, this wild, it's a wild guy. Yeah. He mentioned already, you know, it's a guy with several names, which is, it's hard to keep straight all the different names that he has. And then, you know, you have characters that appear in the book briefly and then, you know, they, they're in his life briefly and then they're out of his life. Um, so, um, I originally, I wanted to really write a true crime story Mm -hmm. and I got to thinking about it. I thought, no, this is really a true crime biography of one guy who was a masterful imposter and a a serial con man who, um, you know, ultimately got in trouble for a lot of stuff uh, decades after it happened. You know, what's interesting about this rank is, is a lot of times when you deal with true crime, you're dealing with the who, what, when, where, why, and the actual crime itself. With this, it's more of a psychological dive into this con man and what it is he does and why. And not just looking at his disguises, but why he takes on the disguise, when he takes it on, what's his motivation for switching his disguise, and then how he tries to maneuver himself as he's getting in and out of trouble it's it's almost like the the art of maneuvering just before you get caught and it's it's that kind of a thrill ride you know of of well he's about to get it but boom then he shifts gears and it's that type of ride you know what i mean yeah i mean that's that's a great description it it really is that it's kind of like you know when you're a kid and you and you do something wrong and your parents catch you and you know, you just say, oh, it wasn't me. 
And then, you know, I mean, true enough, your parents like say, well, you know, it, it was you and here's the evidence to prove it. Um, he's able though to somehow escape that moment of truth in almost every instance. It's like something happens, people say, oh, must be you. And then he's gone. Nobody can ever hold the evidence up to like say, yeah, it was, you know, you. And really this story starts, I mean, we might as well just say, mm-hmm. the story starts with the discovery of a body. Um, and the body uh, is buried in the backyard of a home in a, in a wealthy neighborhood just outside of Los Angeles. So it's the kind of neighborhood where, um, you know, millionaires and billionaires reside. There's, you know, gated homes. It's, um, it's older and more cliquish than Beverly Hills. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, I want to tell you like the, you know, the head of, you know, corporations live there. Um, a guy that was the, uh, you know, the director of the CIA lives in this neighborhood. So it's not your, you know, your typical like Southern California neighborhood that you'd see like on the Brady Bunch or Marcus Welby or, you know, leave it to Beaver. This is a, a high end a well-heeled, very wealthy neighborhood. And it's very unusual. I mean, never (laughs) has anyone discovered a body buried in a backyard in this neighborhood. So, so this, 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 like I say, this happened in 1994 and it was what happened, why this body was discovered is a man was putting a pool in his backyard. So, you know, they're bringing the back clothes out and they dig and dig and, Oh, Hey, what's this? There's bones. And, you know, they, you know, they dig a little bit deeper and they realize that they're, you know, these are human bones. And, um, before long people in the neighborhood start, you know, remembering back a decade earlier Mm -hmm. and, you know, and what they remember is that there was a young couple that lived in that house. There was a boarder that lived there and the mom that owned it. And they all disappeared within a year of each other. And they tell the police that and the police come out and they start looking and they realize that, well, yeah, these bones are in fact the body of a guy named John Soas who disappeared from that home in 1985. And that sets up sort of a, you know, in the book, it sets up a sort of like, okay, well, let's go back and look at 1985 and see if we can piece together those characters, the mother, Dee Dee Soas, John, the victim, John's wife, Linda, who's also missing, and the border. And everybody remembered this border. He he lived in a back house there. His name was, as they knew him, his name was Christopher Chichester. And anybody that knew him in, in this town, San Marino, remembered him as kind of a bon vivant, a guy who, you know, said he was attending uh, school at USC, a guy who, you know, claimed he was involved in the movie business, and a guy who also claimed to be of royal descent. Claim He actually claimed that he was related to the Mountbatten's, you know, that's mm-hmm. Prince Philip married mm-hmm. to the queen. Yeah. And the name Chichester carries such cachet. You know, uh, Sir Francis Chichester uh, sailed, you know, circumnavigated the globe single-handedly in a tiny little, you know, sailboat. So uh, people were just fascinated with this guy and with his heritage. And, um, so, so that kind of, you know, that kind of ingratiated him and that, but people remembered him too. So the police 
you know, they, they dig up, they realize, okay, we got this body here. It belongs to the missing guy. Well, where's his wife? Where's the border? And, you know, they, they look back in 1985 and, um, and, and, and to me, 1985 was just this absolutely fascinating time in LA. Oh yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think we talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, well, we can talk about it now. I mean, let's, let's take a look at 1985. I mean, you're just a little ways out from the, the summer Olympics. Right. right. Yes. The summer, summer Olympics were a huge deal in Los Angeles. And it was a time when, you know, there was this like, spirit of rejuvenation in in america you know um the ronald reagan had uh, you know was running for his second term in office Mm -hmm. the you know the late 70s recession in the early 80s was kind of behind us and um good about about themselves and about and um about los angeles and and um it and 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 it was a blossoming it had a blossoming effect there were artists and athletes and people from all over the world came uh, to LA to kind of experience it. And among them was Christopher Chichester. Um, actually, Chris's uh, real name was Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. And he was a German uh, immigrant, came here actually at the beginning of the Reagan administration in the 1980s and lived in Connecticut for a while um, and moved across the country, um, ended up at the University of Wisconsin, where he met and married a woman, um, got a green card and packed up his stuff and came to California. When he came to California, he was no longer Gerhardt's rider. He was Chichester. And so he, you know, he ingratiates himself with his family and uh, it moves into the, this, you know, this situation where he's renting the back house. Well, at the same time, uh, the woman who owned the house uh, had a, had a, you know, a son who was in his twenties, recently married, working at JPL, which is the jet propulsion laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, by the way, this is very close to Caltech. Okay. Um, and, and the son marries uh, a woman who's, you know, an artist and, uh, and they're into science fiction. Mm-hmm. So we have this, we have these, we have our characters all in place. We have Chris, John, Linda, and Dee Dee. And um, Linda was this fantastic painter. She painted, uh, oh, you know, elves and dwarves and centaurs. And, and um, you know, it sounds fantastic when you, you know, you talk about it like this. But in that, in that time, not only were the Summer Olympics here, but one of the most um, amazing science fiction conventions that um, has ever happened, happened at the same time in late 84. And Linda took her paintings there and sold a bunch of them. So she's, she's up and coming. Um, she's starting to make some money, good money selling her paintings. John's kind of established in his job at Caltech. Um, Dee Dee, who, you know, John's mom is an alcoholic, doesn't really like his wife. Um, and the wife feels like, you know, the only way that we're going to really like advance our careers and ourselves is to get out of this situation with her. And John said, well, the only way we can really do that is if we move into the back house where, where Chichester is. Well, that sets up, you know, this, this whole 
event and they you know they disappear it's february 1985 let me ask you this frank now this this to me was a little confusing why is chris back in the back house to begin with was it was it a financial thing that that chris was renting that back house yeah that's a great question thank you i'm sorry if that confused you but um yeah chris so the so dd rented out that back house and you know originally her mom had lived there and then somebody else's mom lived there and then you know uh, and and chris went to because he was so ingrained in the san marino community met people at church who knew that Dee Dee was renting out this back house okay so so he connected with her and you know started renting out the back house the back house was probably you know, um, seven or 800 square feet had its own fireplace, um, more set up like a studio apartment than anything, but it was an actual living quarters with a, you know, um, kitchen and a bed and a bath and, um, and he lived there and it was separate from the main house. It had a separate, it had a separate entrance. It had a separate driveway. Um, so, uh, he was able to, you know, kind of come and go, uh, as he pleased. And with the tension in the house between the mom, uh, Dee Dee and Linda, um, it felt like Linda needed to get into that back house. Like if her husband was going to have to live with his mother, then Mm -hmm. they might as well live in that back house. When they expressed that, you know, to their friends, um, it wasn't too long afterward that they disappeared. Okay. Now, Chris has kind of an interesting authenticity added to his character in that you mentioned that he meets some people at church. When he gets into town, um, he kind of ingratiates himself to the church, to the Episcopalian church, doesn't he? That is, yeah, 100%. That's really kind of his, um, his way in. So... I think as he's developing his his sort of con routine, early on he he realized that at the core of many American communities is the church, um, and in the wealthier communities, at least in the late seventies and the early eighties, that church would have likely been the Episcopalian Church, and in San Marino, that Episcopalian Church was the Church of Our Savior. Um, it's a church that uh, had been in, you know, established in. Uh, the uh, 19th century, it was the home of uh, Benito Wilson, who founded kind of Los Angeles, and his grandson, General George Patton, was a parishioner there. In fact, this church has a m- amazing stained glass window that commemorates uh, D-Day and the, um, the march across uh, France and into Germany, uh, including the Battle of uh, um, the bulge and uh, Baston uh, with, you know, a stained glass window that shows, you know, saints like St. George and stuff, mm-hmm. but it also shows Patton on his tank with a sword slaying a dragon that's covered in scales that are uh, swastikas. Wow. So um, it's super symbolic and really interesting that a guy from Germany, West Germany actually would end up kind of like in this parish. So in this church, a lot of, uh, you know, movers and shakers of the community uh, were in attendance every Sunday. You know, they're the Rotary Club guys, the, 
um, the junior league moms, the um, the city council members, uh, you know, people who, who the realtors and people who did business together. So they're all, you know, all these wealthy people are in the same church at 10 a.m. every Sunday. And then Chris kind of walks in and ingratiates himself to this crowd. And um, it got him introduction to their daughters. It got him introduction to their businesses. It got him introductions um, into their pattern of speech and their approach to uh, problem solving. And, um, you know, he was able to sort of, you know, imbue himself uh, with that, you know, feeling and then just like twisted a little bit so that, well, here I am, I'm this Royal and I'm in your church and, you know, I can help you as much as you can help me. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it, some of these dads were crazy. They wanted to set their daughters up with this guy because, you know, he told them he was the 13th baronet of Chichester and they, and, um, I, I did actually a great interview for this book with, uh, with a woman who went on a date with him and, um, he, you know, she's expecting this Royal guy to show up and it's this little ratty guy in a Plymouth era with a bunch of uh, post-it notes, like pasted up. And she's reading the post-it notes and she realized that he kept them to keep his stories straight. Oh you my know, gosh. like I, I it, and so, uh, they didn't go, didn't last long, didn't go far. And, uh, um, she went home and told her dad, what, what, why would you set me up with this guy? I, I just don't get it. But other dads did the same thing. That's incredible. So that's Chris living in the back house and he's got this whole other life going. Um, that, you know, above and beyond what, what, you know, the life of John and Dee Dee and Linda, you know, their life was, uh, you know, a little bit more, um, honest, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Dee Dee, uh, was a divorcee, um, uh, who had lived in this same house since birth, inherited it from her family. Uh, John was a real smart kid who struggled with diabetes, um, and Linda was, uh, you know, a hardworking woman who worked in a bookstore and, uh, had a dream of being an artist. And, um, so you kind of pair that, you know, kind of all American hardworking, like, let's make something of ourselves family with this, you know, guy who's like, well, he's going to be successful, but he's not going to do it in any way that gets his hands dirty. It sets up this, you know, this interesting dynamic. That's a good place for us to take a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about John and Linda, their aspirations once they get to the back house, if they get there, and what happens from there. Chris has other plans, and we'll talk about those other plans that he puts in motion, some of the weird stuff he does in the back house, and how he gets out of that back house eventually, and where he goes. Because what happens from there starts a bizarre line of events that makes the book so much more interesting and gets things into this bizarre tailspin. That's the only way to put it, Frank. Our guest is Frank Gerardo. The book is Becoming Clark Rockefeller, Murder, Love, Deception, and the Con Man Behind It All. It's available by Wild Blue Press. We have a link in the description of this program. Click on it during the break, folks. You got to get your hands on a copy of this book. I'm telling you, it is a story that you just won't believe. And I'm telling you, there's... You want to talk about narcissism, meeting up with grandiosity, meeting up with just 
forgive the language here, Frank, the balls on this guy to to want to create these stories and yet try to keep them all straight and manage to think that he was going to get away with everything. Just the, the tale in itself seems too good to be true, but it is. It's all true. Becoming Clark Rockefeller, we'll talk more about Chris slash Clark when we come back right here on The Best in True Crime Podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. Welcome back to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. Our guest is Frank Gerardo Jr. The name of the book is Becoming Clark Rockefeller, Murder, Love, Deception, and the Con Man Behind It All. When we left you, John and Linda are trying to get out of Dee Dee's front house and move to the back house where Chris Chichester, as we know him now, is in that back house. And, well, let's just put it this way. We... Don't quite know if they're successful yet. They're successful in life. Linda has her sci-fi business, and she's she's an artist. She's she's getting some she's getting some uh, some business actually selling her drawings and her her painting. Uh, John is at Jet Propulsion Laboratories and doing relatively well. They're they're getting there in life. They're starting to have things come together. They've been married on Halloween. Things are going well for them, and they want them to continue going well. Chris has other plans, though, doesn't he, Frank? Yeah, yeah. You know, in fact, things are going so well. I want to go just say this. Things are going so well for John and Linda that they buy a truck because they know they, you know, they're going to need this truck to transport art um, that Linda's doing. So, yeah. So, you know, they want to get into this back house and um, and then they vanish. They literally just they're gone. And um it's baffling. It's baffling for Linda's friends and it's baffling for Dee Dee. Um, you know, John's lived with her, uh, for his entire life. And, uh, um, she wonders what happened. She asked Chris, Chris, what happened? What happened to John and Linda? And he says, well, you know, I can't tell you everything, but I can tell you that they are now working for the government. And they've left town. They're going to New York. They're on a secret mission for um, a government agency. And, you know, Dee Dee knows that her son works at JPL and that he's a, you know, a computer programmer of some note. Um, and, you know, Linda, well, I mean, if, you know, John's going to go on a secret mission. It's a good thing Linda's tagging along because Dee Dee doesn't really want her in the house. So that's kind of like the, you know, the baseline story. About a week passes and Linda's friends, you know, call the San Marino Police Department and say, listen, our friend is missing. We're concerned about her. And the cop's initial reaction is, well, this is an adult woman. Adult women go missing all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, the friends are insistent and they tell the cops, please, please, please go out there. And the cops make more than one trip out there. And, you know, their their encounters with Dee Dee are very, um, I would say, you know, weird and, um, you know, when they talk to her, she's like, you know, I have a source, I have a source. My son is on a secret mission with his wife and I can't tell you anything about it. And the police say, well, who's your source? Where are you hearing this? And, you know, she kind of, she doesn't really say it's the person that lives in the back house, but she kind of motions, you know, around the corner and moves her eyes in a certain way to let them know that she's talking about this guy. And, um, you know, there's John and Linda's truck sitting in the driveway for a while, and then it's not sitting in the driveway. 
Um, and eventually, you know, the police go to talk to Chris in the back house and they, they knock on the door and he comes to the, they explain, this is the police. We'd like to talk to you. And he comes to the door completely naked <laughs> and he's standing there, uh, fully nude. And the officer, you know, this again, this is the 1980s. It's a small town. He's not really like, you know, really looking processing it he freaks out like says put some clothes on sir closes the door walks away um you know files that into his police report and um you know they don't really like they don't push it's just like okay weird dude living in the back not really sure what's going on here mom's got this issue they write everything down um that encounter though which happened in April of 1985, got um, got Chris kind of uh, uh, doing a couple of things. He started a, some kind of a fire that upset his neighbors. It smelled really bad. Um, he uh, drove around the neighborhood looking to sell things, including a blood-stained rug, and um, had a party uh, uh, where he invited some friends over to play Trivial Pursuit. And they asked him, hey, what's going on in the backyard? Why, you, you know, it looks like it's all dug up. What's happening here? And he, you know, to which he explained, well, you know, the lady knows the house is putting sprinklers in. So this is what it looks like when that happens. And then he's gone too. He, in April of 85, he vanishes. Only when he goes, so does John's truck. And as you might imagine, you know, Dee Dee was distraught. Mm-hmm. Um, Linda's friends were distraught. Um, they, you know, um, interestingly, when they began asking more questions about the, uh, about this case, right before the disappearance, they all received postcards that were, um, signed by Linda and they had come to them from, from France and said like, Hey, you know, um, yeah, it's not New York, uh, kind of overshot. Uh, I'll let you know what's going on later. Love Linda. She sent one to her employer at the bookstore. Uh, she sent one to her best friend and um, a couple of others. There was four postcards in all um, that you know she signed and appeared to be in her handwriting. Um, and you know held the friends off a little bit, at least long enough for Chris to get away. And Chris is gone. Linda's gone. John's gone. Uh, and pretty soon, uh, Dee Dee's out of the house and people kind of forget about it for s- several years, at least a few, at least a few years. And then something interesting happens in, uh, in Connecticut. Now, wasn't there, uh, on top of the postcards, was, wasn't there, um, there was one other instance that was kind of unusual. Didn't Chris set up Dee Dee with some sort of caretakers or, or something to that effect? Yeah. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out. So this is kind of actually one of the new, new, newer facts in this, in this, in this story is um, that before he left, Chris uh, met uh, a couple, the Weathersby's, and um, he connected them with, uh, with Linda in order for them to take care of her. Um, I'm sorry, he connected them with Dee Dee in order for them to take care of her when he was gone. Um, and on the side, we don't find this out till very, very much later. Uh, he made a deal with them where he would get a cut of the estate if, and when she died. So, um, 
So he's gone. He's got to deal with the caretakers. Um, nobody knows this. Uh, all Didi knows is that her son is missing. Her daughter-in-law is missing. Um, during this missing period, um, Harry Sherwood, Didi's grandson, comes to visit at Thanksgiving and just has this eerie feeling, you know, in the house. There's Linda's paintings are all there. John's medicine is there. It's like, to him, it's like somebody was there, you know, five minutes ago, walked out of the room, but just never came back. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, it's very vivid memory for him, even all these years later. Um, so, yeah, so they're gone. And Linda's, uh, Linda's gone. John's gone. Dee Dee moves out in the care of the Weathersby's. And um, a few years go by. And... Um, police in San Marino get an interesting call from Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, and, and the call is basically uh, from the CHP or their version of it. They've got a truck there that somebody's trying to register and San Marino has got a hold on the truck uh, because it belonged to this missing couple. So they say, Hey, listen, can you find out who's registering this truck? Can you go and talk to them? And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's the missing couple. So, you know, the uh, Greenwich police, uh, go to the Episcopal uh, Bishop's house because that's uh, who's actually trying to sell the truck. And um, they said, where'd you get this truck? Guy says, well, I got it. And I got it from a guy that lived in the back house over here, uh, Christopher Crow. He, oh, who's Chris? Well, you know, he's a really smart guy. He was a movie producer and lived in Hollywood. We used this truck for his productions and stuff. And, you know, he's moving and he wanted to sell it to me. Well, that sets off another, you know, police investigation of sorts uh, because they really want to talk to Christopher Crow. Mm -hmm. And San Marino cops kind of believe that Christopher Crow is probably Christopher Chichester who lived in the house, um, but they're not sure. Greenwich police track him to uh, the offices of Kidder Peabody. Um, in Manhattan, where he's working as a day trader in a um, in a firm, which which requires a ton of licensing and yeah. all sorts of like background checks, and how he the reason that he was able to pass it is because he used the son of Sam's uh, social security number as it <laughs> uh, as, as like you know for the background check. So hey, hey this this social security number comes back clean, no problem. So he's working at Kidder Peabody. It's nineteen eighty eight. And police are looking for him. And at about the same time that they're looking for him, Dee Dee dies. Um, so uh, Chris convinces his boss of Kidder Peabody that they get, that he wants to go to California with him. Uh, they go to California. They meet with the Weathersby's. The Weathersby's give him his payoff on the will. Uh, they come back to Connecticut and New York. The police are basically knocking on his door saying, hey, we want to talk to you about this missing couple. Um, his girlfriend, Chris's girlfriend, tells the police, uh, hey, I don't know where he's at. I can't find him. Um, and he doesn't show up to work again and disappears for a, you know, what is essentially a second time. Um, he, you know, he's living in Manhattan with his girlfriend and he tells her, uh, hey, let's get married. You know, um, we can we can get married and we can live happily ever after and, you know, have a good time. And, 
they go up to Maine to like kind of prepare for the wedding and they want to go to dinner. And so he calls down to this restaurant and he says, Hey, uh, you know, we'd like a table for two and we're going to have a lot, you know, you find us lobster dinner. And the people say, uh, no, sorry, no tables. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sorry. sir." So he waits 10 minutes, calls back again and says, Hey, I'd like to like a table for two, please. I said, well, sir, we're sorry. There's no tables. And he says, even for a Rockefeller? <laughs> and they, oh, sir, well, you know, Rockefeller, please, Mr. Rockefeller, come down. We'll set you up a table. We'll give you the finest lobster dinner. And at that point, he becomes Christopher Gerhard Schreider, who was Chris Chichester, who was Christopher Crow, becomes Clark Rockefeller. He becomes this, you know, stately sort of American icon. Um, and because people treat him a certain way and with such deference and respect, he tells his girlfriend, hey, I don't think we need to get married anymore, but you know what you can do? Uh, on your American Express, just get me a second card and put my name on there as Clark Rockefeller, which she does. So now he's got a card that says he's Clark Rockefeller. He's living the life of Clark Rockefeller. He's got a pretty decent pad in Midtown Manhattan. Um, he starts collecting art. Um, the police have kind of given up trying to find him. The truck's gone. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of this great life that he leads between 1988 and 1994, really. And um, we get to 1994, and that's when John's body is discovered in the backyard. Well, now, bef- before we get to John's body, with sure. with Clark Rockefeller also comes a new occupation. Doesn't he tell people he's involved in world banking? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, he just a small, you know, with him and everything, it's just a small little thing. It's, it's just a detail. You know, I'm involved in world banking. I do lending for, you know, countries uh, that are in need, countries like, you know, you may have heard of Thailand or you know, some smaller countries in Africa, like Rwanda. Um, and he does this all, you know, this is his pitch to people. Listen, I'm involved in world banking. And he and his girlfriend drift apart, and he actually hooks up with another woman who is um, a consultant at uh, McKinsey, which, you know, is like a, you know, that's where Pete Buttigieg is, was a consultant. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, she's just impressed with his resume. And, and you know, and the fact that he's a Rockefeller. And, and she, but she's also like concerned that he doesn't ever seem to have money of his own. And he says, well, you know, there's a, there's a very, there's a rift in the family. I'm waiting for the estate. Out of the goodness of my heart, you know, I donate my time to world banking for these third world countries. And, you know, he his it's his hope that this is gonna you know just pay off for him and change change uh, her life and um, and his life and it does, but in a different way. <laughs> so uh, he also claims so, he has a rare art collection as well. Well, yeah. So you know, this, this the thing is, it's like we're telling this story. It's crazy. We're going off in all these different directions. We got girlfriends, name changes. Uh, you know, these now we're into our third decade of telling this story, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, yeah, he's involved with the Nodler Gallery, probably the longest, um, most res- longest, oldest, most respected gallery in New York, um, which is also the center of this giant uh, 
um, modern art fraud. So, you know, he, so Clark living in Midtown, you know, claims he has Rothko's and Pollock's and, um, you know, all sorts of these great works of modern art. And he keeps them rolled up in tubes on the floor, you know, because that's, that's how billionaires are. And they, they, <laughs> they you know, that's how, that's how they treat their art. And, but it's, you know, people, they encounter him and they, you know, they, they buy into this whole sort of idea that, well, he's an eccentric, you know, Rockefeller billionaire. Um, he marries his second girlfriend uh, and uh, they, you know, they, they settled down pretty quickly. They actually, they met cute right over a game of clue. Okay. It, it's pretty, he was, uh, um, he was professor plum and she was miss scarlet and they did they actually it wasn't just the board game clue they went to a party where you to get gain, gain entrance into this party you had to dress as one of the characters mm-hmm. uh, from clue and then they do like a murder mystery night so that's how they met hmm. um yeah they had a real murder in that room uh interestingly enough <laughs> so <laughs> so uh so they meet cute, they get married, they settle down, they're still living in Midtown. Um, she's, you know, Stanford and Yale, uh, Stanford grad with a, a Yale master's, gets a job at McKinsey. And, um, you know, she's essentially supporting his, you know, billionaire lifestyle. And they have a child together. Mm-hmm. And the child is extremely attached to Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that, you know, that, uh, he teaches her languages and math and like, they're just, they, you know, they've, they've created this like deep, deep bond with one another. Um, and he convinces his wife that they need to, you know, um, first move to Boston and then, um, you know, get a home in New Hampshire so that this young woman can have the, you know, finest of educations and be exposed to the best of society that America has. Um, and they do, and they and they live in Boston, and he lives in Boston as like this Boston Brahmin. He he kind of becomes Thurston Howell the third, and uh, uh, and and his wife becomes Lovey. And, um, and when you they, say that, you literally mean that. Like he he takes on some of the mannerisms of Thurston Howell the third. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, way way back when when he first came to the U.S., uh, the family that he lived with said he did like two things. Uh, one of them was eat all their food. And the second one was sit in front of the television and study Gilligan's Island and specifically <laughs> study uh, Thurston Howell III, his mannerisms, the way that he spoke, the way that he talked to people, the way that he, you know, um, treated people. And so now we have this kid that was a teenager, you know, three decades later entering his forties, who's actually taken on the persona of Thurston Howell III living in Boston, um, as a socialite belonging to the best, the Algonquin club, um, you know, and, uh, um, you know, using every little kind of avenue that he can to, you know, dupe people into believing that he's somebody he's not. And by the way, all this is taking place while there's a pretty significant murder investigation going on in California. You know, this body's been found. Um, I think the police realized very early on that it's the body of the John that used to live there and that the lone suspect is Chichester, who they now know is this German national. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, and so there's this manhunt. There's a massive manhunt. They put stuff on like, you know, uh, America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries and um, the police go on TV and, you know, talk about this case because, you know, hey, dead body in a nice neighborhood buried in the backyard isn't cool. But the one freaking thing that kind of stymies it is that OJ. OJ happened within three weeks. You know, um, so the, here we have this this publicity blast on the body and the missing guy and all of his kind of personas that they knew about. And then OJ kills Nicole and Ron, allegedly. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, and so the, the entire focus of the world's media, uh, you know, went away from the body in the backyard to the celebrity, his dead wife, the chase, the trial. And so we get to 95 and, you know, this is kind of just a forgotten case. Um, you know, the bones are kind of lying around the coroner's office. The, uh, um, you know, the case file is pretty dead. The, all the leads have been kind of used up and nobody's gone. Nobody's gone back to Greenwich to like kind of follow the path through the girlfriend to Manhattan, to Boston. Cause if they had, they would have caught him. Yeah. I, so, I I tell you, Frank. Yeah. I I think I, I think we 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 want to leave some of the some of the really good stuff at the end for for our readers to to read because the way this thing ends up is just too good to be true. I mean, he <laughs> he does get to Boston, but his final caper, what ends up getting him in in jail and getting him caught, is a little too good to be true. It's wild. I mean, so. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I don't want to interrupt you, uh, Tim. But I mean, yeah, I did, what happens in Boston is is crazy, and we and and you know, uh, essentially, you know, he and his wife get a divorce, and he decides that he's going to um, kidnap their child, change his identity again, change her identity, and just slip away into the night on a ratty catamaran. Uh, that he's going to sail around the world on, sort of like Sir Francis Chichester did all those decades earlier. And um, the, <laughs> you know, but the thing is, it's like, I think the part that he didn't really think through is that when a, Rockef- a Rockefeller is great, it uh, opens a lot of doors. But when a Rockefeller is involved in a kidnapping case, mm-hmm. especially a child abduction that becomes an Amber Alert, that also becomes international news. Yes. And it did quickly and, um, you know, led to this massive, like, dragnet of people on the lookout for Clark Rockefeller, who the FBI pretty quickly realized was, you know, not Clark Rockefeller. He was Christian Gerhardt's writer, Christopher Crow, Christopher Chichester, wanted for a murder that happened in San Marino. And, um, you know, if they were going to catch him, they were also going to try him for the kidnapping of his daughter. So it's a pretty, it's a crazy story and it's not even over once he's arrested. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let me ask you this, Frank, what was, what was Christopher's, and I'll call him by his real name. What was Christopher's main sin here? Was it pride? Was it ego? Was it narcissism? What, what was it? If he, if he would have let one thing go here and what would have let him get away with everything? I think so. I imagine that it, um, if he had not, you know, been so attached to his daughter, if he had just kind of slipped off into the night as you know the whoever he was intending to be, he he 
he had $800,000 in gold coins. Uh, he could have lived a, a cash life, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and been okay. But the idea that, you know, the daughter was his possession, the narcissism involved with that, the reflection, you know, of her into him and him into her was too much for him to walk away from. And, and, you know, that became his Achilles heel, um, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, obviously, I think also though, it's hard to project, you know, the future from the past, but I think, you know, at some point I imagine technology's better cold case, uh, investigation is far more, um, scientific mm-hmm. and somewhere, somehow somebody would have pulled up this case, walked through it one more time and said, Oh, it's this guy. Where is he? And they would have, they probably would have found him. Um, so it was only, I think for him, it was a matter of time. Now, Christopher is still alive. He's incarcerated and yes. will be out relatively soon. I, I take it, correct? So he, so this, this, this all this crazy stuff happened uh, almost more than a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And um, he got a 27 uh, to, sent to life sentence in the California state uh, system. Um, you know, California, it's like two thirds of your time is, uh, you know, kind of credited becomes your sentence, but there's also in California, as you probably heard, there's a huge, um, move, uh, actually legal move to change the way uh, sentences are done, especially in cases involving murder. Mm-hmm. So, um, he could have a resentencing hearing and, you know, be out sooner even, um, you know, I think we were talking back then, like it would be 20, 25 probably before he was eligible for parole, mm-hmm. but he could be eligible a lot sooner. And, you know, he's made a name for himself in prison as an artist who has a lot of followers around San Quentin. Um, he calls himself the artist formerly known as Clark Rockefeller. Crazy. He paints these wild um sorts of like modernistic paintings one has one looks to me like it incorporates the flag of maryland um but you know i'm i don't really know uh know exactly but he's you know he this is going to be his thing uh he's gonna you know try to become an artist and reinvent himself for you know the millionth time when he talked to you and when he's talked to other media, he claims he's completely innocent. In fact, he he pins the murder on somebody else. Yeah. So, you know, so he does claim that he's innocent. He has, um, you know, done so since the day he was arrested. And he says that it was actually Linda that uh, killed John and um, that she assumed a, an identity that, um, you know, has been in track, in tra- untraceable. And that, you know, according to his work, his detective work, she's living um, on a horse ranch in the Carolinas uh, under a different name and um, happily ever after. And that, you know, all these years and all this, you know, the whole dynamic of the case that's been kind of fostered on him is really, you know, her problem. And he says, listen, what, you know, he'll tell you like, well, why would I be living out in the open? You know, why would my friends know my name, you know, know who I was and what I became and what, you know, where I was living if I was trying to hide something or get away with it. Um, 
he's you know it's not convincing but it's uh it's you know it's interesting to hear him you know really point at linda as being the culprit and by the way you know you can see why that could be a convincing tale right sure see we have three people that disappear but we only have one body so Mm -hmm. you know what what happened right i mean did what's the story like what did these two collude and you know there are witnesses that um that place linda uh with chris after uh you know um he's left san marino um and but you know if you talk to detectives they say listen we've tracked down we've run down every lead that we possibly could we've uh and we've looked at databases of missing people, databases of dead people, uh, bodies, Jane Doe's, unidentified bodies, the whole thing. And, you know, it's our belief, the police, that um, that Linda was murdered at the same time that her husband was and that uh, her body wasn't disposed of uh, in the backyard, but is probably buried like out in the forest or in the desert or you know, any one of hundreds of places on the road between Los Angeles and Greenwich. Mm-hmm. And by this time, animals will, would have uh, claimed her or, or, you know, the the elements or something like that. And there's no way that you'd ever be able to find traces of her. So, I mean, no. it's, you know. It's, but you might, but, you know, the thing is, it's like, we don't, but maybe they did, you know, maybe way back when they found a body and, um, you know, maybe there's still like clothing or DNA or something. I mean, I think her family holds out hope that there's, you know, some some sort of way that uh, somewhere, somehow she's been found and, it, you know, they'll figure it out that that body was her. There's also, by the way, there's speculation that she is buried in the backyard um, and the police have gone over the, the, you know, the backyard ground with all kinds of like ground radar mm-hmm. devices to like look and see if that's the case. Um yeah, it's 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 just wild, you know. Um, so yeah, I guess having that missing third person gives, you know, Chris the opportunity to sort of, you know, have a third party that he can blame this on. Well, I hope they find out what happened to Linda soon, because again, it if they do find out what happened to Linda, and it's, I mean, God forbid, it's something tragic. I mean, there's another charge you can bring him up on, and you can keep yeah. him behind bars. Yeah, that's Once right. You know, they didn't they didn't charge him for two murders. They only charged him for one. That's right. And um, yeah. So if you if you were to find the second, and and you go go back to this whole story again, then yeah, that could be a good outcome. That would be the best outcome, I think, for Linda's family and uh, and her friends. You know, because they went through this whole thing. You know, they instigated the police reports. They instigated the investigation. They were the ones who got the letters. They're the ones that like came to court every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, John's John's sister came to court every day too. Yeah. What a nice lady, Ellen Soas. Um, but you know, to them, it's like, well, okay, great, we got answer to half of this, but we don't know what happened to the other half. And the police, you know, detectives, the LA County Sheriff's detectives that investigated this case, I'm 100 convinced that the answer is Linda's dead. She's been dead for a long time, and. Uh, um, you know, we, if we found her, we would try him for that. Well, we hope for the survivor's sake that, that justice is done here relatively soon, uh, that, that they do find Linda's remains or they find Linda, one or the other. And, and that this gets wrapped up and that, that 
some something happens with this that there's some sort of resolution um, because it, it, you know to have that 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 hanging there over over people's heads and and not knowing for certain is is uh, it leaves an unrest with the heart and it's 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 it is painful to go through that day by day not knowing exactly what happened to that loved one. Yeah, her mom and sister are really, you know, broken up by you know her being gone. Yeah. Absolutely. The book is Becoming Clark Rockefeller, Murder, Love, Deception, and the Con Man Behind It All. Frank Gerardo has been our guest. Frank, I want to thank you so much for for being on the program and telling us this incredible story. And again, I encourage everyone to go out and get that book by Wild Blue Press. Thank you, Tim. I really love this show and uh, I, I look forward to, you know, talking to you again in the future. And um, by the way, I, you know, enjoy, I hope you all enjoy the book and you'll see my email addresses in there. Uh, if you want to like, if you want to like reach out and ask me questions about it after you've read it, please do. I'm happy to take them. And um, we've already started on my next project is the Substack, and you can just find me on Substack and start there. Absolutely. And let's get you back on with Burl. We'll talk about burned. All right. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Frank. And okay. uh, all right. Folks, let's uh, lighten things up a little bit. Let's bring in Beer City Bruiser. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christ Bear? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Uh, no. And what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time again, that time you've all been looking forward to. It's time now for Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals. And with that, we need a co-host. We bring in the co-host with the most, the BCB, the big cuddly bear himself, Beer City Bruiser. Bruiser, first of all, congratulations. Your team is moving on in the big tournament. It sure is. And yeah. they were the underdog. They were the underdog in the whole playoff series. Youngest team in NFL history to win a playoff. And a new record. The Packers have won more playoff games in AT&T Stadium than the Cowboys have. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> if you hear that, that's the sound of Cowboys choking all over Dallas. But we'll get to that tomorrow with Ziggy Pigs. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, it's dumb crime, stupid criminals time. And, uh, boy, we have more stories than we have time, I think, here today. Let's start it off today, Bruiser, with a man calling 911, threatening to blow up a school, which isn't the dumb part. The dumb part is he then called back asking for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> he had Uber at 911 on the same speed now, huh? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how you have the hubris to do this. A man called 911, threatening to blow up a Montana school, then called back. He asked for a ride from anyone except for police officers. <laughs> well, 911's the way to go because you can get fire or ambulance. <laughs> or, or a dispatcher. If the or, di- yeah, you get the dispatcher that'll send you to the fire or ambulance, but pretty sure the police are coming. <laughs> right, right. Jacob Edwin Wilson also phoned in the same threat directly to Dodson Public School, a small K-12 school in Dodson near the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation on the same day, which is August 29th, according to U.S. Attorney Office for the District of Montana. Now, staff and students were evacuated to a church parking lot as local and federal authorities searched the school and didn't find any explosives, according to prosecutors. Wilson faces up to five years in prison over making the threats the attorney's office 
announced in a January 9th news release. McClatchy News contacted a federal public defender representing him for comment on January 11th and didn't immediately receive a response. Wilson is described as a transient. He pleaded guilty on January 8th to false information and hoaxes in connection with the school threats. A transient person doesn't have a particular home and temporarily stays in different locations. When Wilson called 911 a second time requesting a ride, he told the operator that he was at someone's house and needed transportation, but specified he didn't want to ride from Fort Belknap officers. That's important in this case, yeah. Uh, Wilson's call was traced to a person's home on the Fort Belknap Reservation where he was arrested. At that point, about 80 students attend the Dodson Public School. The majority of students are Native American and are of the Gross, Venter, and I don't know how to say that tribe name, so I'm not going to butcher. <laughs> You're not going to butcher it, huh? No. Uh, McClatchy News contacted School District Superintendent Gary Whites for comment on January 11th. He didn't immediately receive a response. So there you go. Dodson, by the way, is 275 miles northeast of uh, Helena. So, uh, yeah, so... Bruiser, quick tip for you. If you're going to call in a bomb threat, don't call back for the ride. You got it. I will put that in my back pocket. Yeah. Set, <laughs> set up the ride beforehand. Uh, you're probably going to need it. Do you suppose he needed a ride because he has the bomb with him and need to plant it? Maybe. <laughs> Here's my thought. Uh, how did you get there in the first place to plant the bomb? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. I, I'm not that much of a mastermind. I couldn't tell Neither you. Neither am I. People need to get original. Bomb threats are so 1990s. They are, aren't they? Yeah. 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 It's time for a new era. We've got AI and everything. You can figure out new stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Say AI is going to run something in their computers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A woman is caught smuggling drugs into DeKalb County Jail, according to uh, deputies. You may think, well, this isn't unusual, is it? But here's the twist. Two women are facing charges after after deputies say they were caught trying to smuggle suspected drugs into the DeKalb County Jail. Deputies detained 27-year-old Kyrenda Carter and 36-year-old Portia Wade on January 6th after they noticed a gray van in one of the jail's visitor parking areas. While searching the van, deputies say they found cell phone chargers and charging cords, binoculars, rolling paper, cigarette lighters, earphones, a Swell Pro drone, and remote control, batteries, a bullhorn, and 48.3 grams of what they suspect is marijuana. 48 grams. (laughs) Yeah, I think this was a different way to smuggle it into the prison. Yeah, they were going to go over the wall. Yeah. Carter, the driver of the van, is facing charges of possession of marijuana with the intent to distribute, conspiracy to commit a felony, criminal trespass, unlawful purpose, driving without a valid license and giving a false name, address, or birthday to a law enforcement officer. Wade was charged with possession of marijuana with the intent to distribute, conspiracy to commit a felony, and criminal trespass with unlawful purpose. This is, believe it or not, Bruce, the second time in recent months that deputies have arrested two suspects allegedly attempting to smuggle items into the jail. In December, two men were reportedly caught with drugs, cigarettes, cell phones, and more in a different parking lot at the jail. I think they got a new dispensary open there at the jail with all kinds of new items for the uh, inmates. I think so. And this kind of ruins my thing that if you ever do drugs in prison, it's coming from someone's butt. Because this isn't coming from someone's butt. This is coming from a drone. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's more sanitary. 
It is. It is. You yeah. know, but yeah. still, I was trying to keep people safe in prison by not doing drugs because it'd be butt drugs. But now they're just fighting that cause. That's true. That's true. Have you ever had your your debit card either stolen, your number stolen, or had it cloned and then had it used somewhere else? And then you've had those charges just pile up? I've had someone try to hack my my debit but we have such good security. And Mrs. Bruises on her finances. She caught it right away. Oh, there you go. There so you go. she, uh, it was in an airport. So she bought me one of those wallets that have the yes, the blockers RF- on it. RFID blocker. Yep. Yeah, I yep. just, I just got one of those as well. An employee at an AT and T retailer in Wisconsin was arrested and allegedly used a customer's debit card to pay their citation. <laughs> We go to Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, where an employee of the authorized AT&T retailer in southwestern Wisconsin was arrested after she allegedly used a customer's debit card to pay off the debt, which reportedly included a citation. Someone had to pay it. <laughs> she wasn't going to. <laughs> That's the worst the worst thing you can pay with a stolen debit card. Exactly. Wait, so you're telling me that if someone gives me their debit card and I'm working in a local retail shop, that's not for me to use whenever I want? No, no, no. That's not a free oh. pass to, to go pay whatever you want to pay off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nerds. I thought yeah. it was. Nah. Oh, nerds? Really? That's that's the worst you could come up with, huh? We're in Wisconsin. Gotta say it. Yeah. According to the Crawford County Sheriff's Office, an investigation was conducted after deputies received a report of financial fraud at a retailer in Prairie du Chien on January 5th. During the investigation, authorities determined that 31-year-old Jessica Birkin, a 31-year-old mobility employee from Bagley, allegedly used a customer debit card without their permission to make purchases and pay off debt, including a citation in Grant County. Again, really a citation. Uh, Berntgen was subsequently arrested and taken to the Crawford County Jail on a charge of financial transaction card crimes. The easiest way to get caught. Yes. It's all electronic. It's all traceable. And it's coming back to you. The Crawford County Sheriff's Office was assisted by the Grant County Clerk of Courts and AT&T because why wouldn't they help out in this case? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, here's a story that's close to your heart and close to your gut, Bruiser. Okay. A new driver charged with having a beer while driving to celebrate passing a road test 20 minutes earlier. <laughs> you should have just waited, man. <laughs> well, you know, hey, I passed. How about we crack a cold one? And he's from Canada. Of course. So yeah. it's crappy beer. Well, well, no, not necessarily crappy beer, but you know, it is. maybe he, maybe he <laughs> likes some of the good stuff. A 25-year-old Canadian man had his driver's license a measly 20 minutes before he was pulled over by police who caught him drinking a beer in celebration of passing his driver's test. The Brampton man had just gotten his G2 license, which is a second level permit drivers in Canada receive before they get their full G class license, which sounds kind of cool. It sounds like they're flying an airplane. It does. They got really cool classes. They do. When the Ontario Provincial Police caught him weaving in and out of traffic and speeding down a highway. <laughs> in cel- he shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> no. In celebration. And in only 20 minutes. I mean, you're kind yeah. of a lightweight if you're, you know. That's got to be the fastest citation in driving history. You got to think. In celebration, the driver cracked a beer and decided to drive back to Brampton on Highway 10. Ian Michelle with Caledon OPP alleged. 
we know what OPP means here in the States. The driver flew past an unmarked police vehicle, Michelle said. Uh, according to police, the car was operating at about 30 miles per hour over the speed limit. Oh, wow. He was flying. He was really celebrating. Not only does he have a lead belly, he's got a lead foot. <laughs> yeah. Police also said the driver was weaving in and out of traffic in a careless manner before he was pulled over. I can't even begin to understand why someone would think that drinking a beer in their vehicle while driving is a smart idea, let alone a novice driver who would be well-versed on the rules of the road, Michelle said. After pulling the driver over, they discovered an open beer inside the vehicle. Well, you know, those youngins learn quickly. They got to cover that in the Canadian drivers thing that you're not allowed to drink beer while you drive. Obviously, they don't teach it. I don't think they do, no. The driver allegedly registered a blood alcohol concentration above zero, breaking a law that states new drivers must have no alcohol in their system. Yeah, they're real strict on, well, in America. Sounds like Canada, too. Yeah. The offending driver's license was suspended for 30 days. He was charged with, <laughs> oh, this is a charge in Canada. Are you ready for this? Yeah. He was charged with stunt driving. Oh, I would love to get charged with that. That would be awesome. I would too. I wonder if you can get a diploma for that. That would that would be awesome. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I'd be like, hey, look what I got a ticket for. Stunt driving. Next, I'm going to be on the new Smokey and the Bandit prequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the new Fall Guy. <laughs> yeah. Careless driving, he was charged with as well. Novice driving with BAC over zero or above zero. Blood alcohol content, kids. Uh, driving with open liquor and several other offenses. Uh, stunt driving bruiser. I, I love it. I yeah. think it's great. They just need to teach you in Canada. You can't drink and drive at the same time. That's right. Still got to be the fastest ticket in history. It is the fastest ticket in history. I've got a great title for a novel and it's okay. part of our next case. If you're ready for this, the fall of the couch of Usher. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like some medieval it sounds like the sequel to The Fall of House of Usher. Like, okay, yeah. you saw the whole house fall down. Now let's just watch the couch. Well, maybe the house fell around the couch. and <laughs> They donated the couch after the fall, and someone picked it up from Goodwill, and now this is falling. <laughs> picked it up from Goodwill. A wanted woman who police recently discovered hiding inside a, a hotel couch has been sentenced to serve two years in prison for drug dealing. I'll connect those dots here in a second. I was going to hope you do. 39-year-old <laughs> Stacy Usher was arrested last year after she sold fentanyl to a police informant in, of course, Citrus County, Florida. Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Ew, a hotel couch in Florida. Ugh. Yeah, sounds cleanly, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess. Mm -hmm. Earlier this year, Usher pleaded no contest to a pair of felony counts and was sentenced to 24 months of probation as well as a drug as well as drug offender conditions that include random testing and a pro prohibition against consuming alcohol, of course, because, you know, it's Florida. Right. In late October, Usher was accused of violating terms of her probation and a judge subsequently issued an arrest warrant for her. Usher would later beg not to be violated. Wait, what? Hmm. Uh, since she claimed her life would be in danger if sent to prison. Usher said she had once been a primary witness against someone who received a 20-year sentence. Okay, well, then they'll put you in witness protection, or they'll put you in protection. You're still going to jail. Yeah, you're still going to jail. He's <laughs> not going to G-pop. Yes. Cops caught up to Usher last month at the Bella Oasis Hotel, which advertises itself as the best hotel in Homosassa Springs, 
Florida. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I, it's still a Florida hotel and a couch. Ew. Yeah. Usher has, or Usher had actually burrowed into a couch in a bid to hide from sheriff's deputies. Now I have a, I have a picture of said woman and said couch. You tell me if this looks clean or not to you. Oh, no. You can see the stains already. Yeah. That, that doesn't look uh, like it's hygienic in the least, does it? No, that is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's uh, disturbing to say the least. Yeah. You can see this. Ooh, those are big brown stains, too. That's that's not uh, like watermark yeah. stains. Yeah. 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 After being. Which makes you think what what kind of water. Right. Yeah, like yeah. like clean water, dirty water, urine water. Urine. <laughs> mm-hmm. After being extracted from the furniture, Usher was booked into roomier accommodations at the county jail. Now, Usher, whose rap sheet includes worthless check, fraud, and grand theft convictions, appeared earlier this month in circuit court where a judge revoked her probation and sentenced her to 24 months in state prison. <laughs> She's got it all. Yeah. Usher will soon be committed to the custody of Florida's Department of Corrections, which does not outfit its dormitories or cells with love seats. So <laughs> there's nowhere for her to hide from those people who are looking for her. It would probably be cleanlier. That's right. And that is your fall of the couch of Usher. <laughs> A little story in the middle of dumb crimes and stupid crimes. I want to thank... Uh, Tom and Tony and all the gang who sent in stories this week, because without you, this would uh, be a pedestrian romp through dumb dumb (laughs) crimes and stupid criminals this week. Speaking of, um, this next story, if it's not dumb, I don't know what is. Okay. A Texas man is suing Walmart and is seeking $100 million or unlimited free lifetime shopping. That doesn't make any so just the whole store, just the electronic section. I can't wait to hear this story. <laughs> Roderick Jackson of Wascom filed two handwritten complaints accusing a Nebraska store of false pretense of shoplifting and violating his civil rights. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait to hear this either. <laughs> this is gonna be good. A Texas man is suing Walmart and is seeking $100 million in damages or unlimited free lifetime shopping at any location. That's anywhere in the U.S. So anywhere he goes. Anywhere he shop. goes, Bruiser. It's like they give you a card. Like It just says, and it's probably written like uh, like the uh, logo of uh, Chick-fil-A. Yeah. It just says more shopping here <laughs> and unlimited shopping here. Uh, and it's Rod- signed by Sam Walton, right? Yes, signed by Sam Walton. Uh, Roderick Jackson of Wascom, Texas, filed two handwritten complaints Monday in U.S. District Court for the Western District of Arkansas. This kind of sounds like a Arkansas thing. I'm uh, impressed that he did it handwritten. Good for him. Yeah. He took the time. He did. And nobody does that anymore, do they? No, nobody does. No. Everyone emails. Yeah. Walmart's headquarters are in Bentonville, Arkansas, by the way, in case you didn't know that. The complaints do not go into detail about why Jackson is suing. The complaints allege that an incident occurred in March of 2021 at a store in Omaha, Nebraska, and involved false pretense of shoplifting and the violation of Jackson's civil rights based on race or color. Jackson is also asking that Walmart pay all of his court fees. He filed the complaints without an attorney and could not be reached at a phone number listed for him. <laughs> of course not. 
A spokesperson for Walmart said Thursday that it does not tolerate discrimination of any kind. Mr. Jackson's allegations are almost identical to a lawsuit he filed against our company in 2021 that was dismissed. So this isn't the first time he's done this. He's all about he wants that Walmart. Free he Walmart. He loves the free Walmart. Uh, probably because he shoplifted from there before and it was free that time. <laughs> uh, we intend to defend the company against the allegations, Walmart said, once we have been properly served and will quickly ask the court to dismiss any claims that are without merit, the company went on to say. In 2021, Jackson sued Walmart over the same alleged incident. He wrote in that complaint that he was racially profiled and falsely accused of a crime, which led to his being arrested. According to the complaint, Jackson suffered emotional distress and pain from handcuffs. The complaint did not name the police department. He initially sought $100 million and a huge credit for future shopping, that's in quotes, but later amended the complaint to ask for $175 million in damages, because evidently unlimited shopping is not a thing. Well, I love that he's not going after the police at all. So you clearly know he just wants that free Walmart books. That's right. The case was dismissed last year because he failed to properly serve Walmart, according to court documents. So yeah. that's part of it. So basically, when you walk into another Walmart, you can see this guy's picture. It says, do not serve. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Let's move on. We're going back to Florida where a crab leg caper is taking place. It is a foot and a Florida man stole shellfish valued at over $400, according to deputies. Deputies with the Volusia County Sheriff's Office responded to a shoplifting call early Friday morning at the Winn-Dixie in Deltona and made contact with two men and staff outside the store. You got to love it if it's not deeply discounted. It's deeply in your pants, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. According to an arrest affidavit, a cashier witnessed a man in a jacket leaving the store while concealing several bags of crab legs. He was followed by an older man who did not appear to be holding any merchandise, the cashier told deputies. The store manager followed the men outside and confronted them about the alleged theft. According to the affidavit, the men attempted to leave, but their vehicle wouldn't start. As the man holding the crab legs attempted to return them to the store manager, he was advised that Winn-Dixie would pursue criminal charges because we don't take back warmed-up shellfish. <laughs> and mental note, if you're going to steal seafood, make sure your car works. That's right. By the way, okay, I'm going to show you the guy who, in question, who perpetrated the crime. Who do you think he looks like? Matt LaFleur. He does kind of look like Matt LaFleur, but I'm going to throw out somebody else. You ready? Yeah. CM Punk. Yes, he does. <laughs> it's if Matt LaFleur and CM Punk had a child. That's right. And sent them to go get crab legs. <laughs> then it was this guy, and he put him in his jacket. While questioning the man accused of taking the crab legs, later identified as 33-year-old Kurt Beck, love child of Matt LaFleur and CM Punk, <laughs> deputies said he stated he knew what he did was wrong. After questioning the other man, deputies learned that he did not steal any merchandise and was acting only as the driver for Beck due to Kurt's license being suspended. <laughs> well, hey, I give the guy credit. His license is suspended, so he found a getaway driver. Yeah, well, you know, he's, he's trying to obey the law while breaking the law. Just make sure that your getaway driver has a car that works. Right, exactly. Beck was arrested on charges of petty theft and violation of probation for possession of a controlled substance and was both Jesus smoking meth while he's stealing crab legs oh, <laughs> and was booked into the Volusia County Jail. Of course, Florida. Thank you. That's that is Florida for you. More food news for you here, Bruiser. I love food news. What would you take a bullet for? 
What kind of food? As far as food? Yeah, fast food especially. Good barbecue. Oh, yeah, I would too. Yeah. Yeah. If it's real good barbecue with that nice smoke, smoke ring and some good sauce. Oh, yeah. Yeah, by, by the way, uh, my favorite barbecue, Jelly Bean and Julia, they're moving over from uh, Noka to, to uh, Coon Rapids. Oh, is that closer for you or is that? It is closer for me, yeah. They, they actually, they found a building with uh, with a place where they can set up a full bar. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So they're expanding. Good for them. Yeah, good for them. So yeah, Jelly Bean and Julia moving to uh, Coon Rapids, I think here in February. See, that's worth taking a bullet for. Yeah, see, yeah. And, <laughs> and then you can get a drink when you're trying to walk it off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Well, this guy uh, says that cops fired 55 shots at him while he was sleeping in the Taco Bell drive-thru. Not something I'd take a bullet for. No, definitely not. And as he uh, took those 55 shots from cops as he was sleeping in the Taco Bell drive-thru, he says the city owes him $5 million. Oh, Okay. There you go. Nearly five years ago, police officers fired 55 shots at 20-year-old Willie McCoy, killing him as he slept in his car at a Taco Bell drive-thru in California. That according to a federal civil rights lawsuit. Six Viejo Police Department officers opened fire on McCoy after they were called to a report of an unconscious man slumped over his steering wheel at the restaurant in the city on February 9th of 2019. Why would you fire 55 shots at somebody who's unconscious? I don't know. Uh, Why not try to wake him up first? Well, evidently he began to stir. They began shooting at McCoy's. He started to stir, scratched his shoulder, and slumped forward again. <laughs> Ollie Ollie Oxen free. Sleeper. Holy cow. Right. I, maybe he was drunk. I don't know. But it's still, that's a, you don't shoot. Yeah. The officers said they saw a gun in McCoy's lap, but had no reason to believe he committed a crime. Why are they shooting at him? I don't know. Now Viejo will pay McCoy's family $5 million in damages to settle the lawsuit filed against the city and its police officers. Melissa Catherine Nold, one of the attorneys representing the case, told McClatchy News in a statement on January 10th, We want to be clear that money does not equal justice for a young man that was murdered, Nold said. On January 9th, the Viejo City Council approved the $5 million settlement agreement, inclusive of all attorney's fees and costs. That according to city spokesperson Christina L. Lee, the settlement avoids the expense of what would likely have been several additional years of litigation and does not imply an admission of liability or wrongdoing by the city of Viejo or any city employee. Uh, Lee also added, regardless of the circumstances, we do not want to acknowledge that all loss of life is tragic and continue to offer our sympathy and condolences to the family and friends of Mr. McCoy. How wow. could they say they didn't do anything wrong? They shot, shot him 55 times. Right. Uh, but it wasn't wrong. And, uh, you know, all life is sacred, blah, 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 blah. Here's your five million. Yeah. They literally shot a sleeping man 55 times. How, is that, how are they not at fault? <laughs> I don't know. I guess money makes it all go away. I guess so. Hmm. I don't know that Taco Bell is worth five million either in my life. No, it's not. So I just uh, just putting it that way. Three more stories here in Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals for today. Another food story. All right. This time, what food would you like to be beaten with, Bruiser? <laughs> if I'm going to be beaten, I want a loaf of bread. 
hey, you're onto something there. Yeah, if I have to get beaten, it's gonna be a loaf of bread. That's right, because it it's got a little bit of nice give to it. Um, the wheat smell is very nice when you get, yes, yeah, it's, it's yes, it's got an aromatic smell to it when you get beaten with it, and uh, the give is nice. And I'm I'm not a gluten free guy, so we can take any kind of bread. That's right. Yeah, you won't yeah. break out in anything. Yeah. Nope, I'll be fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. Well, this patron was charged with sub Subway sandwich battery. <laughs> See, so kind of bread. <laughs> yeah. This man threw a hero at a clerk over his unsliced grub. Jeez. Unsliced, huh? Yeah. Some people just lose their patience way too quickly. They do. Upset that his sandwich had not been sliced into two pieces. Oh, really? <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. Just ask them. They'll do it. A Subway customer allegedly threw the offending hero at a store clerk, striking her with the grub. Oh, brave guy. Cops say that 54-year-old, way too old to be throwing a tantrum, Alberto yes. Yes, Alberto DeBarros, was collared following a confrontation at a Subway restaurant near his residence in where? Stewart, Florida. <laughs> of course. Of course it's in Florida. Subway worker Cassandra Pierre-Louis, or Louis, you, you, is it Louis? Lou? It probably it's is Lou. Lua. Yeah. It's Lou. It's probably Cassandra Pierre Lou told sheriff's <laughs> deputies that DeBarros, a licensed building contractor, became upset with her after finding out his sandwich was not separated. <laughs> According, Just ask him to do it, man. Come on. Yeah. Following a brief verbal exchange, Pierre Lou said <laughs> DeBarros began causing a disruptive scene after the subway worker announced that she would no longer be serving DeBarros. The sandwich was thrown at Ms. Pierre Lou. Uh, the sandwich, which struck Pierre Lou in her mid to lower body section, is not further described by investigators. <laughs> So they don't want to tell us what kind of sandwich it was. Yeah. So he hit her between uh, nipples and in uh, navel. Yeah. Hit her right in the yeah. midsection there. Yep. Right in the bread basket. Right in the bread basket with the bread. <laughs> uh, when DeBarros left the restaurant, Pierre Lou followed him outside and photographed his license plate, which led cops <laughs> to DeBarros nearby Porpoise Circle Townhouse. It sounds like he lives in a nice townhouse. It does. Yeah. But you know what? This is Florida, so Porpoise Circle could just be where the local crack people go hang out. It <laughs> could be. During police questioning, DeBarros acknowledged being upset over his sandwich not being cut, adding he believed he threw the sandwich at the counter instead of Ms. Pierre See how stupid it sounds? <laughs> well, when it's by itself, when we put Villa at the end of it, it's fine. Store surveillance footage <laughs> showed DeBarros wiping the sandwich or swipe the sandwich off the counter, which subsequently strikes Miss Pierre Lou. DeBarros was arrested for battery, a misdemeanor, and booked into the Martin County Jail. He was released from custody after posting how much bond, Bruiser? Uh, let's go with $2,500. Go a little lower. Okay, let's go with $750. Little higher. Aim that sandwich a little higher. $1,300. $1,000 bond. $1,000, okay. To throw a sandwich at a Subway worker. <laughs> Plus, he probably paid for the sandwich already. So, Subway sandwiches are like 15 bucks now. So they are? Old. Oh, God, yeah. That's why I don't go anymore. I used to go all the time with the $5 foot ones. Yeah. Good luck finding that now. Really? Yeah, I definitely would not throw a Subway sandwich. <laughs> 
it's not uh, not worth it anymore. Not worth it. Another food story. Another again impact with bread. <laughs> bread doesn't hurt people. Stop throwing it at each other. That's right. It only hurts the feelings, Bruiser. It, it only hurts the feelings. Yes. This is a felony case, which is no longer a pain for a doctor. It says here, a 58-year-old woman was busted for striking her ex with soggy bread. <laughs> well, at least it was soggy, so she put some weight on it. That's right. Prosecutors have declined to pursue a felony case against a doctor who was arrested for striking her ex-husband with a handful of bread slices that she had soaked with water before throwing them at the 70-year-old victim. <laughs> so she thought this out. <laughs> she did, yeah. She like, this isn't going to hurt, but it's going to be really inconvenient for you to clean up. <laughs> She's like, it's not a felony if it's softer? <laughs> 58-year-old Heather Neely was arrested last month following an altercation at a St. Petersburg, Florida residence. What, what is it with Florida what and is, bread? Yeah, take the bread out of Florida. Yeah, I guess so, right? <laughs> Start throwing noodles at people. Uh, Neely, a licensed psychiatrist, she should know better, was charged with battery on a person 65 years or older, which is a third-degree felony. Cops reported that the victim said he was arguing with Neely when she grabbed a handful of bread from the loaf, wet the bread at the kitchen sink, and hit him with the soggy slices. <laughs> God. When deputies arrived at the house in response to a 911 call from the man, the front of his shirt was wet with several pieces of bread stuck to the shirt. Oh, of course. Wah, Don't remove wah. the evidence. No. <laughs> you got Well, you got to prove that it happened. Exactly. Yeah. After being read her rights, Neely uh, reportedly stated that nothing happened between her and the victim, but she could not explain the wet bread in the garbage can of the kitchen. This, <laughs> this is what a wet... Wet bread throwing psychiatrist looks like. She looks like a psychiatrist. Doesn't she? Yeah. She looks like she wants to prescribe you Prozac, but not herself. So, <laughs> yeah. After being read her rights, Neely reportedly stated that nothing happened between her and the victim, but she could not explain the wet bread in the garbage can of the kitchen. Neely and the man divorced about eight years ago, but lived together in the home, which Neely purchased after they split. Following her caller, a judge ordered Neely to have no contact with the victim and to surrender any firearms, weapons, ammunition, or Wonder Bread that she possessed. <laughs> I added the any Wonder Bread. bread products you That's have right. to surrender. Muffins, donuts. <laughs> uh, Neely, who pleaded not guilty to the battery charge, was also to be outfitted with a continuous alcohol monitor. This had to be alcohol-fueled. Oh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> if not alcohol, drugs. Yeah. Neely, who was released on her own recognizance after the December 9th confrontation, learned this week that the state attorney had concluded that the facts and circumstances of the matter did not warrant prosecution at this time. Evidently, she needed to uh, come with it a little stronger than bread. If I was the old man, I'd try to find another place to live. Yeah. She's clearly not stable. No. But you can only go up from bread. You can, yeah. It's, that's all it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, yeah. From there, you, you can only go up, right? That's that's supposedly the uh, <laughs> yes. That's supposedly the deal, I guess. Bread, uh, yeah. I don't know. And finally, um, this is the uh, <laughs> this is the not safe for work story for today. It's a kind of unusual one. I want to thank uh, Tony for sending this in. 
if I want to thank him, I don't know, this is unusual. <laughs> a peeping Tom on Outer Banks used a suicide note as a smokescreen. Oh, okay. This is interesting. Yeah. Like I said, put, to North Carolina, huh? Put the, yes, we're going to North Carolina. You heard of this one? No, no, no. I just know Outer Banks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to North Carolina. Um, again, move the kids away from the listening device. Turn it down if you're around your, uh, your boss at work. We'll give you for five, four, three, two, one. We're going to kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. Okay. Police on the Outer Banks believe a peeping Tom wanted for several incidents last year used a suicide note as a smokescreen and is still on the loose. Oh, okay. The suspect is 48-year-old Jackie Ray Price of Kill Devil Hills, the Kill Devil Hills Police Department announced on Thursday. Authorities say a suicide note was found at Price's home after he was reported missing on May 8th, but no, nobody was, or nobody, nobody and nobody was ever nobody, found. Nobody, yep. Right. Yep. Police say further investigation has led them to think Price is still alive and evading charges. He's facing a felony indecent exposure charge for allegedly an alleged incident at the McDonald's in Kill Devil Hills on April 6, 2023, and seven counts each of felony secret peeping and misdemeanor secret peeping related to multiple incidents on April 13th at the Cavalier Motel in Kill Devil Hills. Okay. Investigators seized Price's cell phone and found seven videos of female victims inside their hotel rooms. One of the victims was just 14 years old. Oh, that's wrong. Yeah. Police say warrants have already been obtained for Price and will be served to him when he's located. Uh, he's not believed to still be in the area, but anyone with information that could help police is asked to call 252-449-5337 during regular business hours or 252-473-3444 after business hours. An unusual story, not our normal jokey stuff, but weird. It's very weird. And and to think leaving a suicide note to, to get the police, police off your son, that's, I have to say, that's kind of smart. <laughs> but eventually you're going to find out you're not dead. Right, right. Uh, just... I hope they catch the guy and they put him away for a while. A 14-year-old, I mean, just, if you're going to peep and you realize the girl's a little young, move on. Not that I encourage peeping. Right, right. It's it, just a, a bizarre story here. It, 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 it is. You know, and, and to, I don't know, just the whole, to me, the whole leaving a suicide note behind, think, making people think you're dead. Yeah, and just then, to get away from charges. Yeah, just to get away from charges is is and and you're, they're gonna find him because this sounds like it's a compulsion. You know what I mean? If he's if he's indecent, exposing himself, at McDonald's, he's numerous peeping Tom stuff. That's a compulsion, so he's gonna have to do it again. His body's gonna want him to do it again. Right, right. And he's gonna get caught. Right, right. One more story for you here, Bruiser. Okay. Before we leave people, I want to leave them on a decent note, but a weird note. Okay. So let's do this. This story is from the beginning of the year. It's a little older, but it's a good old-fashioned Florida man story. <laughs> we love our Florida men. A tire shop owner shot a landscaper for blowing leaves onto his property in northwest Miami-Dade. 
That's how you handle that. That's right. The landscaper was transported to Jackson Memorial Hospital in critical condition. I know that's not the funny part of it, um, but just good old-fashioned Florida man story all the way around. The business owner shot a landscaper at the beginning of the year in Northwest Miami Dade for blowing leaves onto his property. The shooting happened in the 1500 block of Northwest 79th Street, according to Miami Dade Police. The landscaper was working at a property across the street, and the owner of P&P Auto Tire Shop became upset that the leaves were being blown onto his property. An argument ensued, and the owner shot the landscaper, police said. (laughs) The landscaper was transported to Jackson Memorial Hospital. Police detained two people for questioning in that. A witness told NBC6 she heard two gunshots and the victim falling to the ground after getting shot in the leg. Cell phone video shows him lying on the road. Leaves on your property. Yeah, that just have a conversation. Say, hey, man, can you please try not to do that or clean up after yourself when you're done? Everybody thinks they're a soprano. (laughs) They do. Speaking of, did you see that that HBO last week was airing for the the Sopranos are 25 years old. That blew my mind uh, because I have Max when I put Max on. They're like 25 year anniversary and they have all these updated stuff. And I've been going back and watching it and it's. It's amazing. It's a great show, but amazing. And I I might have an inside to one of the cast of The Sopranos, so I'm going to see if maybe I can book said actor onto, the, onto True Crime Tuesday and see if I can get an interview. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Get some stories, get some dirt. Yeah. It, it, um, I, I, it was kind of a guilty pleasure as I was booking guests and, and as I was doing my research for the week, I would. I had the Sopranos on in the background. What they were doing on HBO two last week is every day last week they were playing. They were playing one of the seasons. Back oh, to nice! Back to back to back. So I just had it on in the background, and yeah. it's amazing how much you forget. Uh, oh, I know. I went back and and I actually watched binge watched the whole first season over the weekend, and I'm like, oh, that's right, this happens. Oh, that's right, this happens. Yeah. And you, you forget how how much it stands up over 25 years and how, how contemporary the series is. It really is evergreen. So, James Gandolfini and, and the guy who played Polly Walnuts are two of the best actors of our generation. Yeah. yeah. Gone way too soon. Yeah. But just watching him as Tony Soprano, you truly believe he was a mob boss. The uh, What is the movie with... Um, uh, Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts is it the Mexican? Yes, where they got the, or is it, yeah, it's the Mexican. That's where they're driving the El Camino and the yeah. Mexican's a gun. Yep, yep. Yeah, he's very good in that too. Very good. And there's also a rom com that uh, Gandolfini's in where he's excellent as well. Um, but yeah, that there's uh, he he was uh, yeah gone way too soon and, and such a talented actor. But uh, yeah, th- th- just the. The range that he showed as Tony Soprano was amazing. Exactly. And then that last season where he's in the coma is really where he stretches and yeah. and and he's Kevin Finnerty. And and keeps saying, Well, I'm not Kevin Finnerty, but maybe I am Kevin Finnerty. And when he's in the coma and he thinks that that um uh you know, he, th- he really does start to believe he's a salesman. It, it's yeah. it, it's just such good stuff. It's just such good acting and and Man, it's it's just such a shame. It's just such a shame that he didn't live to, you know, reprise the role later in yeah. life. But I recommend anybody who hasn't seen The Sopranos, go back and watch it. If you're a mob fan, an old school mob fan, this is the show for you. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I can't believe there's some people on boards who haven't seen it. Yeah, I've, I've met a couple people um, my age. Like, I can understand the younger generation not seeing it, but I have a couple people that are my age. Um, in fact, we were talking about it at uh, the underwater needlepoint training about how Hey, it's the 25th year. Go check it out. It's amazing. One of the guys wants to do kind of a mafioso gimmick. And I'm like, you need to go watch that because every character that's within the family has unique, distinct characteristics that he can pull from and add to his character in the ring. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he'd never seen it before. That's crazy. That's just crazy. I've seen The Godfather, all The Godfathers, but I'd never seen The Sopranos. That, there's there's never going to be another show like that. That's for sure. Uh, right. Bruce, that'll do it for today. What do you got going on this weekend, buddy? This Saturday, January 20th, AML presents War Act of War Games 3. Um, it will be streaming on titlematchnetwork.com. It's at the Winston-Salem Benton Convention Center. I am on George Sell's team, managed by Violent J, going against C.W. Anderson's team, managed by Arn Anderson. And what War Games is, is two rings surrounded by a cage. It's probably the most violent match in professional wrestling. And very excited to be a part of it. The undercard looks amazing. There's a five-way. If you don't tune in for the War Games, tune in for the five-way scramble match. It's a two-ring scramble match with five guys. And... I can't tell you enough. There's going to be holy shit moments left and right. So it's uh, AMLWrestling.com uh, if you want tickets. Uh, TitleMatchNetwork.com if you want to watch it. And if you want to train with me, AMLWrestling.com slash training. Come train with me and I'll, I'll make you an underwater needle point. There you go. There you go. Uh, I'm up at KNSI this, ne- or this weekend. I had to switch out weekends because we had a winter storm move through here. And hey, 75 miles for an old guy is not a not one way is not a good thing to do no, in a um, major winter storm. So I switched out weekends with Todd. I'll be up there this weekend and uh, just doing the KNSI thing this weekend. KNSIRadio.com on Saturday from 7 to 9 a.m. Central Time. Tomorrow on the big show, Supernatural News. And I want to thank Frank Gerardo. Uh, today for being on the show Becoming Clark Rockefeller is the name of the book, go pick it up we have a link in the description of this program for Beer City Bruiser, I'm Tim Dennis, thank you so much for tuning in to True Crime Tuesday and join us tomorrow for Darkness Radio again, thank you so much for joining us today for True Crime Tuesday True Crime Tuesday